This is episode 800 with Professor Mark Williams. So, so you need to get the right balance between these two things. And it may well be actually, whereas uh, players in your country, you know, possibly do engage in as much street football as, or beach football as they do in Brazil. The question is, are there then appropriate structured training environments where they can get access to coaching that will complement the hours that they're spending in street sport. So mm-hmm. it, it's getting that balance right that I think is important. And then mm-hmm. maybe uh, the other issue that may be problematic as well is, is, is the fact that um, uh, as kids progress up through the system, they need to get exposure to probably better coaches, uh, better training facilities, mm. and a higher level of opposition to play against. Welcome to Athlete Maestro, a podcast tailored for athlete development, improvement, and peak performance. And now, here's your host. Welcome everyone back to the Athlete Maestro Podcast. And trust me, the the episode I have for you today is as amazing as it's ever going to get. As you heard in the beginning, episode 800. You didn't overhear that. You didn't mishear that. It wasn't an error. This is the 800 episode of the podcast. And trust me, to mark 800, you you need something special. This is an episode that was recorded, you know, I think a few weeks ago or close to over a month ago, you know, and every time I wanted it to air, I always thought, you know, that, hey, why not wait till episode 800, like a landmark episode, then you give them something that has so much punch. And trust me, guys, this this is the episode. This is the episode with Professor Mark Williams. And look, l- let me just quickly reel through what Professor Mark Williams has done. So he's a professor in the Department of Health, Kinesiology and Recreation. And of course, he just finished a stint at the University of Utah where he was the he was a professor and of course a chair of the Department of Health and Kinesiology and recreation so he just finished that stint and i think he's currently an adjunct professor there as well this is a prof right who has written 18 books 77 book chapters 60 professional articles he's also the author of the book the best how elite athletes are made of course i promised professor mark that i'm going to get multiple copies of that book and i'm going to send it to you guys some of you guys so if you're interested in having a copy of that book send me a mail taller at athletemaestro.com and you have to copy Professor Mark in that mail as well. I'll let you know his email towards the end of the podcast. So when it comes to knowledge about sports, trust me, Professor Mark is as detailed as they get. He's as knowledgeable as they get. And of course, he's a sports scientist as well. I was teasing him on the podcast that he's leaving us in the psychology field to go into that scientist aspect. We talked about so many things, guys. We talked about skill acquisition. We talked about, you know, relationship between practice and performance. What happens when you don't fully trust your coach or you're not sure if you have the right coach, then, you know, this phenomenon called street sports, you know, or, you know, play on your own type of sport how good is that how does it help how do you find the right balance we also talked about learning environment and of course the parents weren't left out i know professor mark is not a parenting coach like i am but ah trust me when you're when you've been doing this for years when you're good at what you do 
this is something you know that almost comes natural to you and of course he was able to provide so much insight into that aspect of sports as well trust me this is an episode you do not want to miss you don't want to miss it for anything in the world and you want to listen to it more than once you don't want to wait a few hundred episodes when i'm going to do a select edition to come back and listen to this one you need to take notes you need to digest it especially the parts where professor mark is talking about the difference between elite athletes and average athletes i'm going to stop talking right i'm going to stop talking i'm going to lead you into that episode with professor mark williams it's an episode you do not want to miss this episode guys is brought to you by my free email course on how to build your mental toughness the old ss guys of the podcast is to introduce you to the performance angles or sports that you have not been focusing on and one of them is the mental aspect so just as an introduction how can you begin to build the mental aspects of sports that's why i created that free email course athletemaestro.com forward slash mental toughness athletemaestro.com forward slash mental toughness when you signed up for that free email course come to class yes we are not at the university of utah we are the university of athlete maestro with myself and professor mark Yeah, I guess I try to uh, stay busy. It keeps me out of trouble. Uh, so yeah, a succinct summary would would be that I've I've obviously been in um, in academia, higher education for thirty odd years. Mm. I've been um, done, did my PhD at the University of Liverpool and uh, worked in Liverpool, both at the University of Liverpool and Liverpool John Moores University. Mm. Worked in Australia for a while at the University yeah, of Sydney. Yeah, Sydney. Yeah. Uh, um, Brunel University London, University of Utah, and now I work at a dedicated um, research institute in Florida, Institute of Human and Machine Cognition. Basically. Yeah. But, but essentially my interests you. have remained consistent <laughs> in terms of, uh, you know, the focus on expertise, skill mm-hmm. learning, and uh, talent identification development. Mm. We're, we're getting you at the right time because it appears that you are you are kind of abandoning us in sports a little bit, you know, by going into machine learning. So I'm happy that I can catch you at this time before they suck you into that world and we cannot lose you in sports, you know, completely. So it's it's fabulous. I see perfect timing. It, it always works. Now, just like you mentioned, Prof, your your background, yes, is as a sports scientist, but you've done a lot of work in sports. Obviously, you're the author of of the book, The Best, How Elite Athletes Are Made. And one of the key things that you talk about in the book, which I want to start with, and I'll just give you like a preface. So there are two angles that I want our conversation to go today. One is from the athlete's angle and one is from the parent's angle. You know, and you know, in, in, in Africa, we're kind of like um, in a special special place of our own in terms of development in sports education i was giving you you know like little background in terms of access Mm -hmm. to certain things so i want us to educate the athletes i also want us to educate the parents of these athletes you know in terms of nurturing and all of that we'll start with the athletes themselves when we talk about skill acquisition one of the things that i will tell you now is that you know in africa we always believe that the skill is either there or it's not there you know, so you would hear people talk about it. It's either it's got it or it's not, you know, and I feel I might be wrong, but I feel that that is largely due to the fact that there is not enough education, research, enlightenment in that development that you can actually develop skill. So when we talk about skill acquisition, what, what exactly are we talking about, Prof? 
Yeah, well, that that very thing in the sense of how people acquire skills. Mm. I mean, I guess, you know, there's always a long, cantankerous debate around <laughs> the, the relative role of nature and nurture and mm. genetics and environment in, in the development of expertise. And um, I wouldn't suggest that genetics don't play a role yeah. in the development of expertise, and maybe the relative importance of those factors may vary as a function of the nature and the type of sport that you're involved mm. in. But there's no doubt also that um, certainly in ball sports and, and sports that are heavily reliant on technical and tactical ability, you know, there's a huge amount of hours that have to be invested in practice. Mm-hmm. And for instance, in soccer here in Europe, then kids, you know, typically start playing at around four years of age. And yeah. often many of these kids are in formal training environments, academies by seven, eight years of age. Mm. And uh, they're accumulating probably not far off, maybe 20,000 hours of practice by the time they get to the first team, Mm. uh, if they do manage to get that far. So there's a huge investment in practice. So no matter what your genes are, unless Mm. um, you have the right environment that encourages you to get involved in the sport early, gives you the right exposure to, you know, the best coaches, the best facilities, and, of course, the right quality of opponents, mm. then it's, it's, it will be very difficult to reach the end of the road and to be a professional athlete. So the two factors, without doubt, interact. Uh, and, of course, the plus point about the environment is that it's more under our control. And in many ways, the book... The best just focus on those issues. It focuses around, uh, you know, how we can optimize whatever genetics that we may have, yeah. and in an effort to try and become elite uh, in sport and, of course, across any domain, any domain, mm. um, professional expertise. You mentioned a great point there, Prof, where he talks about, you know, practice. So let me just ask you quickly, you know, are you with the Malcolm Gladwell, you know, side of the divide where you have the 10,000 hour rule? Or are you with the David Epstein, you know, which is, you know, the sports gene and range and, and all of that? Which, which side of the divide do you find yourself? Well, it, you know, it's funny. I was having a conversation earlier on and see, scientists... Mm. actually think in shades of grey. <laughs> so scientists, with scientists, there's rarely a definite answer to yeah. any particular issue. Uh, whereas, of course, journalists, in contrast, you know, they probably read what literature they do and they come to a very broad, definitive conclusion, mm. as, of course, um, Gladwell and Epstein have done. So I would be somewhere in the middle. <laughs> and... Um, and there's no doubt that also where I would be on that spectrum of nature and nurture would really depend on the type of activity. Yes. You know, there may be some sports like, for instance, sprinting or long distance running, for instance, where genetic may pay, genetics may play a more dominant role. Mm. But then there are other sports like, like soccer, football, uh, tennis, golf, where maybe it is mostly about environment and engaging in the right type of practice so that you can develop the skills that are essential uh, in order to, to become an elite athlete. So it's a, in keeping with my scientific background, there's not a clear, clear, clear answer to that question. 
And in fact, that's how we end that chapter. There is a chapter in the book actually about specialization and diversification, yeah. and the relative benefits of those two pathways. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we ask the question, so which is best then? And we answer it by saying it really does depend. Yeah, yeah, it depends. <laughs> yeah. You know, if, if, if you were in a professor, then I said you're probably a lawyer, you know, because obviously depending on the side that a lawyer finds himself, you know, that depends on the answer they give. You know, if you are, if you are representing maybe the claimant or the person who is claiming, you know, you have a different idea. If you are representing someone that is someone who is defending, you know, then you kind of have a different idea. But I get your point, you know, in terms of, you know, from that scientist angle being more or less in the middle. But one of the things, we're going to come to that early specialization thing, you know, which is more or less where I want us to go with the parenting angle. But in talking about skill acquisition, you've mentioned practice a lot, you know, in terms of, you know, those that practice, how they practice and all of that. One of the things that I've seen you talk about over time, and I think you've mentioned it in the book as well, is this relationship between practice and performance. Can you enlighten us a little bit on that in terms of it's supposed to be a specific way or it happens to be specifically with the coaches when they are practicing doesn't necessarily translate to performance in a way no i mean there's a couple of key points to make here i guess the first key point i will make is that um the correlation between engagement in practice and improvement in performance is actually not that strong mm. what's really important of course is that you're engaging in the right practice what my former colleague Anders Ericsson would refer to as deliberate practice, mm. which is purposeful, specific practice with the intention of improving some aspect of performance. So, in other words, if you keep practicing the same things all over again, mm. then there's probably a limit on how you can progress. So the important thing, of course, is to identify uh, the weaknesses that need to be improved and then developing and designing the right type of practice to improve. So that, as I said, it's not exposure to the sport and performance that are correlated. It's engagement in the right type of practice that you need at each stage of development that is well correlated with performance. Mm. Uh, the second bit, which is a very, very, and the point that you allude to there is it's a very difficult one for coaches in so much as that in the skill acquisition literature, we differentiate between performance and learning. Mm. performance is observed behavior so if i'm a coach and i'm taking a session whatever sport basketball soccer what i see from the athletes in that session is their performance their observed behavior uh, but invariably in order to see whether learning takes place then we have to be able to see that that change in performance is retained over time and also that it transfers from the practice environment to other practice environments. And of course, the ultimate test is competition. Mm. And the reason why this differentiation between performance and learning is important is that um, literally for coaches, what you see is not always what you get as far as long-term learning is concerned. Mm. So we know, for instance, that if we provide lots of instruction, yeah. uh, do yeah. repetitive block practice of a single skill, and provide lots of feedback. In other words, be very hands-on in the coaching process. Yeah. Then we yeah. get great short-term performance in those particular practice sessions. But in contrast, literally the reverse conditions promote long-term learning. Mm -hmm. So maybe the question should be, well, what is the least amount of instruction 
that I need to give this athlete so that he or she be can begin to practice the task independently. Uh, crucially, does the practice environment mimic the demands of competition? In other words, that's both yeah. physically, physiologically, technically, tactically, psychologically. Uh, you know, does it look like sport? Because uh, I think specificity of practice is one of the yeah. strongest rules yeah. of science. Yeah. And then, of course, yeah. finally, what is the what is the least amount of feedback that I need to give these athletes so that, in essence, these athletes can begin to learn the skill independently. So those latter conditions best promote learning. Mm. And of course, rather ironically, the conditions that typically exist in street sport across the globe. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think there's increasing awareness that maybe the role of the coach has changed, whereas a decade or two ago, coaches were very prescriptive general yeah. philosophy you know i own all the knowledge and i will pass it on to you yeah whereas now i i think it's it's more hands-off in the sense that maybe the role of the coach is to act as a catalyst and to create the right kind of learning environment that will allow the performer to you know almost independently where possible develop the right skills to progress on their own Mm. It's not leaving them to do nothing, of course. It's shaping yeah. and molding the learning environment mm. uh, to make sure that these athletes become independent learners and take ownership over their progress. Mm. Mm. I like I like how you how you went with that. You know, in terms of breaking it down. But I'm I'm putting myself now in the position of an athlete who is listening to us, right? And you know, obviously came here to learn. You know, I have prof on the show, so you know, let me pick a few things. Now, that, what you've explained obviously places a lot of emphasis on that coaching angle. If there's an mm -hmm. athlete now, you, you know you deserve better. You want to be better. You're, you're open to working hard and all of those things. But that coach who is coaching you or who has been working with you, if we're looking at it from the deliberate practice angle, you're not necessarily sure if they're giving you the right kind of feedback. If we're looking at it from the actual practice angle, you know, so you're talking about the block practices and trying to mm -hmm. mimic what happens in performance. You're also not sure if that is what the coach is representing. What does an athlete in that kind of situation do? What do you think, Prof? Yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't it? I mean, firstly, it highlights, of course, the important role that coaches play in the development of the athletes. And hence why coach education is important. So mm. Better informed coaches of some of these issues, you know, individual differences in learning. What is the difference between growth training or deliberate practice and maintenance training? You know, what is the differentiation between performance and learning? Mm -hmm. These are all things that, in essence, um, you know, coaches need to be better informed about mm -hmm. uh, as part of the learning process. Um, I mean, I guess there are some things that athletes have control over. I mean. Uh, for instance, what we know is that uh, when left to their own devices, uh, elite athletes are more likely to practice the skills that they're less good at, whereas in mm. contrast, less elite athletes are more likely to practice the skills that they're already good at. Good so I guess trying to identify on your own what areas you need to work on to improve performance in your sport would be important. I mean, again, it helps if you have a coach who can engage in that process with you, but obviously you can do that um, uh, to, to some degree as well. And, mm -hmm. and even, you know, whilst coaches have the 
the responsibility to develop the right kind of learning environments. We know that a lot of learning occurs in, in informal street sport kind of scenarios, um, whereas rather ironically, the kids themselves are very good at recreating mm. the kinds of situations that they often see in high-performance sport you know, through the television and watching live sports. Mm. Um, so there's things in that regard, but invariably also there are skills that, I think um, athletes bring to practice, but can also be changed by the environment, which are important, which is, you know, skills like mental toughness, grit, resilience, yeah. achievement, motivation, yeah. perfectionism. Um, and I think these are all important because technically you, we need to structure and create practice environments which have a, a suitable level of difficulty. Mm. what has been called desirable difficulties or yeah. challenge points, if you like, so that rather than engaging in this maintenance training, athletes are actually engaging in growth training, which stretches the system and makes the system adapt. And, um, and of course, because we're always practicing on that success, that, that sort of barrier between success and failure, it's possible that athletes fail a lot. So I think having the confidence and the resilience to bounce back from that and to see failure as an opportunity to learn and to continue to persevere are again, you know, skills that athletes are involved in, in developing on their own. Mm. So it helps to have a great coach. It helps, helps to have great facilities, but at the same time, uh, making sure we work on our weaknesses, uh, maintaining high levels of motivation, engaging in street sport, and of course, seeking out better coaches. Yeah, better training environments mm. are things that we are probably more control over as athletes. Mm. Mm. Good point you make, and I'm going to take you up on two things that you mentioned. Obviously, the first one is the environment. The second one is this element of street football or street sports, depending on the sport that it is. Now, one thing that you are certain to find in the African context is that there is actually a lot more of street football than you would find. I'm even guessing in Brazil. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that we probably rival, you know, the South American countries when it comes to street football, because obviously, first and foremost, you don't necessarily have the facilities where you can have all those structured things, you know, that we're talking about. So you find people. So, for example, on, on Saturdays and so on Sundays, I take my daughter to play tennis. You know, and when I go to the stadium or the facility where she plays tennis, there are mm -hmm. at least 15 different groups of boys playing street football. So some it's five aside, some it's seven aside, some it's three aside. Like you just see them literally everywhere. Now, so the question I have, Prof, is that if that is the case, if street football is so important, you know, in that development, that talent development of the athlete, why would you say in your estimation that the African athletes are not able to take that, translate that when it matters most in that professional sense? Mm -hmm. Yes, great question. And firstly, you rightly point out that there are, in, in, in the football context, different systems of development. I mean, mm. we talked on previously about the European model, uh, which is one of early engagement rather than necessarily early specialization. Yes. So mm. these kids are engaging early. They're accumulating large hours in the sport. They are engaging in other sports, but to a much lesser extent. In fact, they probably only spend 10% of their time in other sports, playing around two to three other sports. 
Um, in Brazil, of course, we've got data which suggests that the model is somewhat different in so much as that uh, the, the professional clubs in Brazil don't actually have access to players until they're around 12, 13 years of age. But because, uh, like in, in your country, as you suggested, football is so popular culturally in Brazil, then these kids are typically still starting to engage in the sport around four years of age. And they're, and they're probably spending around eight to ten hours a week playing the sport, around half of which is spent in street football and the remaining half of it in futsal. So it's just still early engagement, but it's informal early engagement through these play-related environments. What, um, what the data across the whole sample of elite professional players that we've looked at tells us actually is that probably street football on its own is probably not enough. Mm-hmm. And, and neither mm-hmm. is probably coach-led practice on its own. So you need to get the right balance between these two things. And it may well be actually, whereas uh, players in your country, you know, possibly do engage in as much street football as or beach football as they do in Brazil. The question is, are there then appropriate structured training environments where they can get access to coaching that will complement the hours that they're spending? in street sport. So mm-hmm. it, it's getting that balance right that I think is important. And then mm-hmm. maybe uh, the other issue that may be problematic as well is, is, is the fact that um, uh, as kids progress up through the system, they need to get exposure to probably better coaches, uh, better training facilities, mm-hmm. and a higher level of opposition to play against. And, of course, similarly, better, better teammates to play with. Mm. So I wonder whether in Nigeria they have that right structure whereby, you know, you have so many kids playing at an early age. Um, are there then appropriate structures in place so that the better kids can progress to, to having access to better facilities, better coaching, better opposition, better teammates to play with? Because then you get these so-called desirable difficulties or challenge points that mm. allow these opportunities for growth and development. Whereas I said, the hours, coming back to my previous point, the actual total number of hours that you expend in the sport aren't the key thing. Mm. It's being exposed to the right quality of practice or play-related activities at the right stage of development. development. Maybe having coaches around that facilitate that process at mm. some point becomes the limiting factor. Mm. Mm. And it actually makes sense. I actually didn't even look at it from that angle, you know, so in terms of, yes, you can be accumulating this street hours, so to speak, and, you know, using that as bragging rights, but, you know, how does it measure up, you know, to the other key things? Now, you've mentioned this um, coaching develop- stages of development, rather, can you talk to us yeah. a little bit about that? You know, so at least, you know, if there's an athlete that's listening now, you know, knows that, okay, I think I'm good. What stage in that development process am I so that maybe I gauge myself, look for a better coach or things like that? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's probably an issue more for systems and structures, isn't it? So I don't, I don't know much about um, football in Nigeria. I don't mm. know how proactive the, the football association is there. <laughs> but uh, I mean, ultimately... You know, in an ideal world, it's responsibility of the Football Association to create um, uh, 
good coach education programs mm-hmm. and to provide suitable training in academies at each stage of development. But I appreciate that that requires both resources uh, and, of course, a clarity of structure and strategies and processes to be put into place. Um, if, obviously, you don't have that level of organisation and structure, then it does become somewhat ad hoc. Um, and I guess it then becomes difficult for players, even though they may be super passionate about the sport, even though they can accumulate hours in, in street football. At some point, I think you need to have some kind of structure that allows them more of those players to progress on. Mm-hmm. As I said, my apologies, I've probably known less about the, the system in your country. <laughs> but maybe they're the kinds of questions that need to be asked in terms of, you know, what are the development structures? What are the opportunities for these kids that are obviously super passionate about the sport, mm-hmm. who have spent hours in street football? How can they progress up to the next level? Because I'm sure a lot of the kids, as you're inferring, have the motivation yeah, but yeah. if those opportunities and resources yeah. don't exist, then it becomes very difficult. Mm, mm. Makes makes perfect sense. And before we, before we come to you know your book and how you structured it, one of the other things you mentioned was the appropriate learning environment. From an athlete's perspective, <laughs> at least as far as they are in control, you know, so controlling the things that they can control, how can mm. they make their environment such that it it helps them learn and helps them improve, you know, in their craft. So now we're not just even talking about football, we're talking about sports in general. Yeah, also sports, yeah, across most things. Uh, I mean, clearly, motivation is important. I mean, mm. you know, it's a long road to become excellent in any particular domain. So uh, retaining a passion for the sport, a level of interest and motivation, and a willingness to continue to to learn and to develop are all important factors for sure um but uh, you know that on its own is is probably not enough in the sense that at some point you do need to 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 have access to to these kinds of things that i've spoken about before uh, or certainly many sports i mean certainly team sports i would say certainly sports that are very technical and tactical mm. I mean, there may be other sports, perhaps like like distance running, where it is more about the individual, of course. And, yeah. and you maybe don't need the same access to facilities, resources, and coaches as you do in team sports environments. Uh, but I guess retaining that enthusiasm and passion for the sport, and actually even even being aware of the fact that it is a long journey and mm. there will be lots of ups and downs, you know, what you might term rocky roads of speed bumps, (laughs) speed bumps along the way and uh, looking at a long process and that the challenge is to continue to engage and to try and work on your weaknesses Mm. such that you can become a better athlete over time uh, are probably general characteristics that would be beneficial for all athletes, irrespective Mm. of what sport they're interested in. You you mentioned uh, sorry I, you know I'm picking up on the things you're talking about and you know it's kind of like you know making me excited you know you mentioned this um, working on weaknesses again now the I don't know if it's a general school of thought but I know that this is how a lot of athletes think right if I am going to expend a lot of time working on my weaknesses and I am not sure that I'm going to improve on those weaknesses 
how about I just work on the things that I'm already good at, mm -hmm. try my best to focus on being so good at it that I cannot get overlooked. You know, so for example, you have a, you have a striker in football or you have a point yeah. guard in basketball, right? So maybe the striker in football, you know, has terrible feet. So it's first thought. Maybe if you use them, um, somebody like Lukaku as an example, you know, but they're mm -hmm. so good in the air. You put the ball in the air, nobody can beat them. Yeah. Or with the point yeah. guard, you know, they're, they're good with perimeter shots, but if it's not a three-pointer, it, it's difficult for them to shoot. For an athlete who has that type of mentality in terms of, you know, these weaknesses are taking so long to work on. What kind of advice do you have for athletes like that? Yeah, it's an interesting way of, of rephrasing or recouching the question, isn't it, in many ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it comes back to that issue I discussed before in terms of, you know, what proportion of time should you spend in, in growth training? Mm -hmm. What proportion of time should you spend in maintenance training? Mm -hmm. Maintaining and retaining the skills that you have. Yeah. And, and, you know, like most of sciences are different. There's no definitive answers. <laughs> they're, just, they're just things that we have to be aware of. I mean, it also depends, of course, and as to how strong your strengths are and how weak your weaknesses are mm. relative to others in that, in that particular sport. Um, I mean, certainly that certain proportion of training has to be maintenance-based in order to retain the skills that you have. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, I guess, we have to look at what additional skills might we need uh, that are currently weaknesses to develop in order to become a better player. Mm. So... Um, you know, if it's working to improve kicking with your left foot rather than your right foot or being better in finishing with a header as opposed to um, using your feet, then, you know, there are things that in order to become a better all-round athlete that, that you do need to work on. And I guess a lot of that reflection can be done by the athlete in their own right. Uh, mm. But at the same time, I think it helps if that's informed by data where possible. And obviously with technology playing an increasing role in sport, Globally, we have more access to data now that can help, that help us identify what some athletes do well and what they don't do so well. Um, I mean, or even having the opinion of a coach uh, or even significant others, mm. parents, siblings, older siblings, for instance, might help in terms of ascertaining the things that, that you need to work on. But ultimately, the short answer to your question is that, yeah, it's interesting in terms of how much time do you spend in maintenance and how much do you spend in growth training. We know that probably both are important. I mean, mm. maybe they vary over time. Mm. And they even could vary on a week-to-week -week basis. Yeah. In the sense that the plus point with maintenance training, of course, it helps you, it helps improve confidence. And that may be the more important thing for you if you have a big sporting competition tomorrow is that you're mentally feeling confident about yourself mm. and performance. So maybe that's not the key time to be engaging in growth training. But, so there is a, a sort of a macro cycle here also of, of mm. when you engage in maintenance and growth training. Plus, as I said before, you know, there's lots of psychological factors as well. I mean, I mean, some athletes are super confident, they're very resilient, got high levels of self-efficacy. And maybe they can engage in more growth training because they, they can cope with the failure. They can bounce back from it and they can see it as an opportunity. Whereas others might be a little bit more fragile in that regard. And again, maybe they may benefit more from maintenance training 
and more intermittent or lower levels of growth training. And there are things that we can measure in that regard, but I don't think there is a systematic uh, model in place that would account for those kinds of issues. But I think they're fascinating questions that coaches need to be aware of and athletes. Fantastic. The, the latter part of what you just mentioned, you know, in terms of the athlete knowing themselves, you know, so mm -hmm. some athletes are naturally confident, you know, so those ones can still engage in growth training. The ones that are not so confident, yes, you do more maintenance, build up your confidence. You know, what I'm hearing you say, or at least I, I don't know if I'm right or wrong, you know, is that that athlete has to be very self-aware. So they have to know themselves as the athlete. How can an athlete generally improve their self-awareness where they then know that, okay, look, this is what I should do at this time. This is what I should do at this time. This is what I should do to improve certain things. Because I feel that without that self-awareness, you know, they're probably just working on things that maybe they shouldn't be working on. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I mean, this comes back to the point that I touched upon earlier as well, doesn't it, in regards to the advantages where coaches are involved, coaches. <laughs> coaches who, 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 um, who uh, engage the learner in the learning mm. process and encourage the learner to take some ownership. And mm. in fact, there's a big drive towards self-regulated learning mechanisms at the moment, you know, allowing athletes to choose when they want instruction, to choose mm. when they want feedback, to choose how they want to structure practice. So I think... Again, when the coach is present, that developing that relationship, relationship and developing those skills in athletes are, are obviously very, very important. I mean, athletes themselves have the capacity to engage in self-reflection and, mm -hmm. and maybe an awareness of the kinds of issues that we're discussing at the moment might bring these issues to mind. I mean, I mean certainly athletes are better, elite athletes anyway, are better engaging in, in, in self-reflection. So not only do athletes, these elite athletes spend more time practicing skills they're less good at, but they also spend more time than their less elite counterparts self-reflecting mm. on uh, you know, what, what went well in practice today, what didn't go so well, what, what do they need to do differently in the next practice session or the next game, the next competition. Mm. So an element of self-reflection and then maybe trying to be systematic in identifying areas that need to be worked on moving mm. forward, uh, things that an athlete could do independently as well. Although, again, all help greatly by the presence of a coach. Mm. Mm. So that, that, that coach cannot more or less, you know, plays a very, very, you know, important role in the whole athlete development dynamics, you know, and, and I totally agree because obviously you don't want someone working on something for like 10 years only to realize that, you know, they were working on the wrong things all along. Now, the second part of your book is dedicated, you know, to that mental aspect, which some of which I've mentioned now, you know, in terms of, you know, mental toughness, greed and all of that, you know, so more or less like inside the mind, you know, of mm -hmm. these elite guys, you know, when we, let, let me just ask you, you know, point blank, is it possible from all your research, all the books you have written, all the, everything that you've done, is it possible for an athlete to succeed in sports without the mental game? Uh, that's not a dichotomous question. <laughs> there are, it's a continuum. I mean, clearly, if you don't have those skills altogether, then your chances are quite minimal. But, um, I mean, as, as all things in sport, there's something that I refer to as the compensation phenomenon applies. Mm. 
which is why talent identification becomes so difficult in the sense that if you have a weakness somewhere, then that weakness could be compensated for by developing a strength elsewhere. Uh, but there is no doubt that um, you know the psychological aspects of sport are important and are probably becoming increasingly important. Mm. And, and um, on the plus side, we know that um, some of these psychological factors are impacted by genetics, but at the same time, we know that they can also be shaped by the learning environment and the exposure that we have to practice and competition over time. So I think a rough argument would suggest that roughly 50% of these psychological factors are genetically determined and 50% are amenable to the environment. Uh, and some, some I know some sports psychologists that, that would argue is more about the environment. I remember making a point at a conference once that um, I wondered whether there was a, a prevailing strong genetic component to motivation, for instance. Mm. You know, because when you look at these pathways to excellence where these kids are spending you know, 15, 20 years engaging in the sport and accumulating 15, 20,000 hours of practice, kind of thought is that is that there's something genetics about their motivation that makes them want to engage in that extent but the answer i got back from a couple of very prominent sports psychologists was that they thought that was still driven by the environment a great deal mm. the role that that coaches and significant others have in, in in shaping our path our path to greatness so on the positive side um well firstly i think we must should acknowledge the fact that these psychological factors are crucial on the positive side, we should also acknowledge the fact that they are amenable to interventions of different ways. And that uh, sports psychology, I guess, and sports psychologists uh, have been playing an increasing role mm. in um, helping to optimize player performance uh, mm. across many sports over the last few decades. Mm. Mm. In, in talking and, about and, that, go on. I was going to say, and again, if you, if you, Going back to the book, then there are obviously numerous examples of elite athletes in the book who talk about some of the psychological skills that they've developed, maybe how they've developed those, and what role a sports psychologist has helped play in their development. Mm. Mm. That's that's where I was going to go. That you know, from all those, from some of those people that you looked at in the book, which of those psychological factors stood out to you? you know, in, of course, writing it, in listening to all of that, that you were like, you know, this particular one, oh, very important for this particular reason. Yeah, it's very hard to pick one out, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I usually, I usually do pick half a dozen out, and I've mentioned, mentioned those two or three times already in the sense of, um, I think passion and interest are important because if you don't have that passion and interest in the sport, then it's going to be hard to retain involvement. Yeah. Uh, you know, the motivation is key uh, and that motivation can somewhat lend itself to becoming perfectionist tendencies, mm. but certainly high levels of motivation are important. And then, you know, some of these uh, skills that help you get over the, the, the sort of rocky road, bumpy road scenarios, resilience, mental toughness um, are, are equally important as well. But but I guess, you know, there are a range of psychological skills that, that and they interact and often come together differently. But there's no doubt that, and also even another one I'll throw out there is this notion of having a growth mindset and being, and being willing to accept the fact that you need to grow and develop new skills is also an important 
attribute grit is another one that comes up quite often. Mm. What, what we really don't have is that, well, there's quite a bit of research that when, if we took a group of elite athletes and a group of sub-elite athletes and measured some of these psychological characteristics, then there's no doubt that typically the elite group, the experts, score higher mm. or are more desirable in these characteristics than, than, than the less elite group. What we really don't have, though, is, is longitudinal research that kind of identifies to what extent were there differences on some of these attributes early on in the development process, or to what extent have these attributes been developed and acquired through engagement in that sport over a long mm. time. Um, and of course, we started to dig into the issue of talent identification there, you know, in terms of whether there are any early predictors of talent or not, or, um, or whether it's all about how we respond and, and change to, as a result of the experiences that we face along the way. And of course, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that our rate of change, our rate of responsiveness isn't driven by genetics. Mm. So for instance, even though you may start with low levels of mental toughness, for instance, yeah. uh, and end up with high levels of mental toughness, I mean, we still can't really differentiate whether it was the environment that created those <laughs> or whether there were some genetic predispositions that might have made you more amenable to that. Mm. Uh, and that's the same thing. It's the same comment that I made before around practice. You know, that we know that practice, engaging in the right type of practice is important. Um, but what we don't know, I guess, to some degree, because we really don't have longitudinal research, is whether if you and I started at the same place and you had a thousand hours of extra practice, and I had a thousand hours of extra practice with the same coaches in the same environment. You know, would mm. we both adapt in the same way, or or might you or I benefit more and, mm. and develop at a faster rate? Um, but it's very, and I suspect that probably is the case, of course, and that's why some athletes make it to the end of the journey and others don't. But what we probably don't have at the moment is any way of predicting whether you or I would do better based on that mm. thousand hours of practice. I mean, you may get some indication, of course, in the sense of, you know, after two, 300 hours of practice, we can see how both of us have adapted. Mm. Uh, but we don't even know whether that the growth is consistent. So it's, it, it's probably sort of yeah, oscillates up and down. And, and, and even if you did better than me after 500 hours of practice, it doesn't mean that, that you'll still do better than me after a thousand hours of practice. Mm. Mm. Mm, good point. And it all comes back to that talent identification, you know, that you mentioned. So the, the, the reason or one of the reasons why I started working with parents. So the, the goal or the idea was to, you know, give education to the athletes themselves. You know, so, I mean, you see athletes who are working on the wrong things because they don't have access to information and too many things. And what I found out over the years, you know, so from working with the athletes, even from the time I was playing, was that a lot of damage had already been done by the parents, especially those who were from above average backgrounds. You know, so for those who, you know, it was sports or nothing, you know, when we are talking about this mental aspect that you mentioned now, you know, for them, it was more or less survival. You know, so you had to develop that mental toughness. You had to yeah. develop that grade because if you don't play sports, there's nothing else you're going to do. So they, they more or less found a way Yes, we can go into the, the numbers that made it and, and all of that. 
But when you come to those that are above average, that's where the problem really was because the numbers are so low of those that make it. And what I realized was that it was a problem from that parenting angle. You know, so maybe um, um, they were being spoon-fed. Maybe they were being overprotected. Maybe, you know, they were exposed to certain things. What would you say about that talent identification from the parent's perspective in terms of the parent has a child, whether they want the child to play sports, whether the child is the one who has the interest in playing sports, what are some of the things that you've seen that these parents are either getting right, getting wrong? Mm. Well, um, firstly, it's important to say that parents, significant others, guardians, and siblings are, mm. are very important, typically, of course, in getting children involved in sport. You know, often many sports necessitate some resources or certainly the fact that parents... Uh, take the kids to the practice sessions and introduce them to the sport. Mm. Um, and at the same time, there's a lot of research that suggests that your chances of becoming an elite athlete are much higher if you have siblings, mm. particularly if you have older siblings on the grounds that, um, you know, they provide um, community of learning, if you like, in the sense yeah. that you observe your older siblings, they probably increase your interest in the sport you can you can learn and practice with them, uh, and that those factors are very very important as well. I mean, ultimately, my view would be that it's the responsibility of the parents to introduce kids to the sport. Mm. Although that can sometimes happen in school and other environments as well, but I think it helps if the if the parents are supportive. Uh, I mean, ultimately, though, I think that passion and interest to continue engagement in the sport has to really come from the child. And um, it's important for the parent not to force kids <laughs> to engage in sport if, if they don't want to do that. Mm. And then increasingly, I guess, uh, you know, helicopter over-parenting or so-called mm. helicopter parents uh, are placed, playing an increasingly negative role in terms of trying to push their kids too hard, trying mm. to solve all their problems for them at an early stage mm. rather than... Um, you know, being there when the kids need support and encouragement uh, and rather than, than over-pushing in terms of their, their development and research. So, yeah, they're difficult things and uh, the things that coaches always comment on quite frequently as well, actually, you know, the uh. difficulty of parents who are uh, overly hands-on in regards to the way that they deal with their children is, is, is probably a bigger problem than working with the players and the athletes themselves. Um, maybe education is important here as well, actually, not just as obviously spoken explicitly about coach education before and implicitly it's been the underlying theme of the podcast, I guess, yeah. but maybe, maybe parent education is important as well, you know, in terms of um, informing parents of maybe what are good behaviours and not so good behaviours. Yeah. And also, actually, I, I think also probably what parents don't appreciate as well is... is um, how long this road is. It is. <laughs> from, you know, starting mm -hmm. engagement in the sport to becoming an elite athlete and how many challenges and speed bumps there will be along, along that particular yeah. journey. You know, it's not, um, there isn't a short-term fix to this. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it's a long-term process. So trying to push that process along 
too strongly, I think, is more likely to lead to the child dropping out, mm. losing motivation in the sport um, than it possibly is to making them reach the elite level. Yeah, challenges of uh, parents, but you know, the, all of these are system-based issues, though, aren't they? Again, we know it's, it's how do we better educate parents? How do we encourage kids to get involved in sport? How do we keep them involved in sport? How do we make sure that they get um, access to the to the right coaches and the right facilities with the right level of opposition and teammates at the right stage of development? Mm. And that's all part of that pyramid. Yeah. Uh, initial participation right the way to, to, to the elite level. And, you know, in some ways as well, we should, although, you know, I, I think our interest in this conversation has mostly been about elite athletes and yeah. becoming the best, which, which, you know, obviously we all enjoy elite sport and it's a big driver for all of us. But, you know, not all kids participate in sport for that reason. Mm. And, um, sure. Sport has the benefits of providing uh, physical activity, uh, a set of skills that can often last a lifetime. Nice. opportunity to socially interact with people and yeah. um, and maybe you know for many athletes that's as far as their abilities or their aspirations might go uh, um, uh. hence why it's why um there's a little bit of a horses for courses approach to this in the sense that you know the kind of environment that you need to develop an elite athlete is probably very different to the kind of environment that you would need to have so that kids gain a lifetime love for sport mm. and engage in the right type of physical activity. And obviously we, are, we all start off in that latter category you know, we're interested, we get involved in the sport. And at some point, some athletes, a small proportion of those athletes, uh, they progress at the rate where there are aspirations for them to, to maybe go higher. And that's where I guess you need, need to also have the right systems and structures in place that allows those who demonstrate those mm. aptitudes to be able to, to progress on, which maybe coming back to your point before about football players in Nigeria, maybe that's where the barrier is in the sense that um, mm. there aren't those systems and structures in place that would allow a higher proportion of the better players, the more motivated players to have those opportunities to develop and to progress. Mm. Is, there, is there anything parents can do to help with that system and structure, at least as it relates to their small ecosystem. So we're not talking about now the federations or on the larger scale, but you know, in my house, in my little ecosystem, is there anything parents can do to, to help improve those areas? Well, supporting their children, encouraging them to continue to participate, remove barriers mm. around travel and access. Um, okay. Mm -hmm. Maybe providing more of a, a listening ear mm. and, uh, you know, not being overly critical um, are also things that will probably help the child maintain participation in the, in the sport. Um, and again, as, as I said, in many instances, you know, many kids have siblings and I think siblings can also play an important role mm. in that regard. And, and so can friends, of course. I mean, there's such a thing as yeah. you, know, you have a cluster of kids who are all interested in the same sport. So what mm. you're doing, of course, is that maybe you're creating that kind of community of learning or that environment that possibly can exist at home, but 
but it can also yeah. exist within the clubs and the sporting associations that we interact with because you've got other kids, people with similar interests, yeah. similar desires and, and, and that can also act as a supportive community to help athletes develop. Mm. And that's one of the things that I always tell the parents as well, you know, and, and I like that you mentioned it at the beginning where you said, you know, it's the job of the parent to introduce you know, the child to sports or vice versa, introduce sports to the child. You know, one of the things that I always tell parents is that if you don't do that, you know, then you kind of quote and unquote, leave it to chance that they're going to make friends in school that love sports. Because if they make friends that, you know, it's video games or, you know, it's some other type of play, then they're not going to get that introduction to sports and you would have missed out on the opportunity to be the one to introduce it to them. But this then brings me to this point, Prof. If yes, we shouldn't as parents, you know, I mean, I have a daughter of my own, you know, she plays tennis. And obviously, you know, a lot of people always think that because I have the podcast, because I'm a big sports proponent, you know, I'm kind of pushing her in that direction. And I'm like, I'm not doing that, right? You know, she's the one that wants to do that. What happens in a situation where as a parent, you, you know that your child can do more? if they are pushed, you know, so in terms of, you know, if they are, I don't want to use the word encouragement, but, you know, if they are, if you, if you kind of just a subtle push, you're not forcing them to do it, but you know that they have that capacity, but Mm. maybe because of laziness, maybe because of how the world is now with, you know, with gadgets and social media, you know, they're kind of lazy in that regard. How do you as a parent find that balance? You don't want to force them, but at the same time, you know they need that little push, you know, just to get going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, it's one of those scenarios that there isn't a definitive answer to that. <laughs> the, the first point you raised that I should probably make, though, and that you did ask me earlier about what the structure of the book was the best. Mm-hmm. And um, the first section does look at um, really some of the, the role of serendipity. Yeah, serendipity, um, nature. Mm. Mm. You know, and, and a lot of things that we don't have control over. So the role of parents and whether the parents introduce you to that sport at the right time are important. You know, whether you have older siblings or not are all issues that we have no control over as kids. Mm. Uh, in many ways, of course, access to uh, playing and training facilities. You know, often we have no control over you know, your chances, I would imagine, of being an elite alpine downhill skier are quite <laughs> poor if you're born in Nigeria, I would imagine. True. It's just the physical geography is such that it's, it isn't going to happen, is it? Mm. And, but, you know, some of the sometimes that those limitations are in terms of physical geography. Other times it's just cultural popularity of the sports in certain countries. So where you're born and where you grow up, Uh, as a serendipity aspect to it as well, and things that we generally don't have control over. And then the other thing, of course, is these issues around the relative age effect, the seasonal birthday bias, and the fact that you're far more likely to be selected for an elite training academy if you're born early in the selection year. So even your month of birth has a serendipitous impact on on your chances of success to some degree. Um, But so coming back to your question, though, I mean... Parents just need to be there and provide those opportunities for kids as best as possible. I mean, and it's a difficult balance about when to when to push or even when to pull, you know. Mm. And um, 
I mean, I think maybe to some degree what, what we can do is provide kids with the opportunities and encourage them to take up those opportunities. Mm. At the end of the day, we can't do it for them. Uh, yeah. We can't make them passionate and interested in sport. That's something that they have to provide from within. But um, giving them those opportunities, encouraging and supporting them, and not putting too much pressure on them uh, to perform, I, I think is the very least we can do. I mean, after that, you know, it's a lot of it is about resources, coaching, exposure. And the final section of the book focuses on some of those issues. You know, we yeah, talk about individual differences, about deliberate practice, about the role of coaching, about the role of technology. And uh, as we've alluded to, the middle portion of the book really highlights how um, the supreme adaptability and plasticity mm. of the human system yeah. in that once we begin to engage in these activities, you know, how quickly the system adapts and overcomes these challenge points, desirable difficulties, and begins to develop these kinds of skills. So whether these are psychological characteristics like mental toughness and grit, or, or whether they're, um, you know, the development of game intelligence skill, the ability to mm. the game to participate and to make appropriate decisions, to cope with the pressure that we're under. Uh, these are all adaptations to, to, to practice. And uh, coming back to the nature-nurture debate again, you know, we know that all these things are influenced significantly by our environment. So ultimately we are largely a product of environment, but mm. I don't the fact that there may be some genetic limitations or some genetic factors that may interact with, with environmental issues, although, you know, we have less control over those factors. And at the same time, it would be hard to identify what kind of those, what, you know, what are those genetic factors? I mean, we may be able to identify, for instance, what, whether there are genetic factors that underpin, for instance, aerobic endurance, yeah. And that might be quite useful, perhaps, in, in distance running. No. <laughs> for a soccer player, it's probably not that not helpful, is it? In the sense that, you know, aerobic endurance is probably not a substantive component of the sport. Mm -hmm. And there are so many other attributes, as there is in most team sports that contribute to it, you know, which is te technical, tactical, psychological, um, some of them are physiological, some of them are physical, and, and the relative importance of those components differ across sports. I mentioned the compensation phenomenon before, you know, just because yeah. you're not, as a, as a soccer player, just because you're not quick over five yes. or ten mm -hmm. metres doesn't mean you can't compensate for that by developing better game intelligence skill or having mm. other, other attributes. Um, mm. So, um, yeah, that's what... The book essentially focuses more on those kinds of environmental issues, more around the things that we can control and the things that athletes themselves can control. Uh, whilst at the same time highlighting the importance of systems and structures and getting those kinds of issues right, helping mm. to provide the right type of environment for the development of the athletes. Mm. Mm. All comes back to the coaches and comes back to the environment. And you see, that's always a good sign that you're having a great conversation when it's already one hour and you actually don't even realize 
that it's already actually one hour, right? So, you know, adaptations from practice, we've not even talked about that. You mentioned decision-making, you know, a little bit in that process, but don't worry, Prof, I'm not going to take your time. Now, one of the things that, you know, I always ask towards the end of the podcast is, you know, there's an athlete listening to us, and of course, we're going to split this into two. So from the athlete and the parent perspective, you know, they've listened to everything that we've talked about for the last one hour, you know, all the, all the breakdowns from the, from the scientist's perspective from the book perspective and all the things we talked about you know and they ask you say professor mark right i need one thing that i can do today that gets me a step closer to my goals it doesn't have to get me to the goal but it gets me one step closer so from the athlete's perspective what would that one thing be from the parent's perspective what would that one thing be well from the athlete's perspective it changes all the time doesn't it which is why it's a constant cycle mm. of identifying areas of weakness that need to be improved upon and then designing and implementing the types of practice activities or training activities that are needed to to make that step i think it's realizing the fact that no one gets up one morning and and you know is an athletic great it doesn't happen like that it's a journey it really is a journey it's a long journey and um and you have to think about it that way. You have to think about it as a step-by-step process. And therefore, it's a case of what step do I have to take now no. mm. to, to move a little bit further down that road? And accepting the fact that the next step after that will probably change. So it's a constant cycle of review and design activities mm. and work on developing activities to, to move forward. And accepting the fact that sometimes there are periods of time where things will go well, and other times there will be periods of time, times where things don't go well. Mm. Um, and maybe, maybe also acknowledging the fact that there is, whilst there's not everything we can control, I think yeah. you do have a lot more control over things than you think you have. Mm. Uh, and maybe that's the way to look at it. What can I control? And therefore, by definition, what do I need to work on mm-hmm. to make that next step? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think for the parent, it's, uh, I mean, the parents are important, as we've said, in regards to the fact of introducing kids and maintaining their initial enthusiasm in the sport. But ultimately, I guess that the role of parents probably tends by and large to diminish as time goes by. Yeah. When yeah. kids get embellished in the structure and the systems of talent development and the role of coaches become more important. So, you know, maybe at the end of the day, the key message for parents is um, create opportunities for your child. Mm. Don't push them too hard mm. and, uh, and hope that the child finds something that he or she is suitably passionate and, and, uh, and interested, motivated in to continue to engage in and then mm. be supportive. Mm, fantastic now final question prof the reason i named the podcast athlete maestro was because i wanted to help athletes master their crafts of being athletes you know provide that information that education and of course you know it's led me to great people like you knowledgeable people like you you know a prof a phd holder you know if you were in nigeria right would have been calling you professor dr mark you know, and then we go through, we go through all the others, right? So the reason I named the podcast Athlete Maestro was for that specific purpose. What in your estimation, Prof, does it mean to be a master of your craft? Um, 
Well, one way means you've survived that long journey. That you, <laughs> you know, you've retained that passion and interest for a long period of time. I mean, I, even in my field, uh, you know, I've, I've been, as I said at the start, for more than 30 years in, in academia. And I suppose it's, um, and I'm still as passionate and as interested now as I was when I started off on that journey, actually. And that's, that would, that's probably important, is it, just to maintain that passion and interest. And to, to have that growth mindset of trying to find things, okay, what can I do today that will make me a better athlete or a better scientist tomorrow? Uh, and, uh, and maybe that's the, the important mindset that drives us all on, really. Self-progression, self-development. Mm. Mm. That's, the, that's the most straightforward answer that I've ever heard. And of course, the straightforward answer is coming from the professor in terms of, you know, what it means to be a master of craft. Thank you so much, Prof, for, for coming on, for all the work that you do. Like I said at the start, if I was going to, which I'm, I'm still going to do it, you know, in the intro, I'm sure when the podcast would air, you're going to hear it. If I was going to go through all the things that you have done, you know, over the course of the time that you've been doing this, I kid you not, would have spent at least 20, 25 minutes just going through it, your accomplishments, you know, and all the amazing work that you've done, you know, I thank you so much for putting everything out there. You know, it's not easy. Like you said, you're still as passionate as you were then, you know, to do it and even now. So um, great respect. Yeah, I, 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 well, firstly, thanks for the invite to the show. I've enjoyed it. I, I love your enthusiasm for uh, the podcast and, of course, sport and the development of athletes. I think, I think it's infectious. So well done to you as well. Uh, reaching out and providing your audience with uh, obviously something that they value and appreciate. That's, that's positive. And um, I'm sure you feel a little bit like I do in the sense that I often joke that, um, you know, I haven't done a day's work in my life <laughs> because, because of that, you know, I really enjoy what I do. So um, it is a vocation. It's a way of life. Mm. And, um, you know, I enjoy it. And, and, and maybe that's, that's the important thing about sport as well, for kids to have that feeling of excitement about engaging in the sport, that it's not a chore and mm. it's not a job per se, but it's something that they love doing. And, um, you know, if we can all have those feelings and aspirations about what we do on a day-to-day basis, then I think uh, that's a step forward. Mm, fantastic. Thank you so much, Prof. Please tell us where we can find you. Obviously, I'm going to put the link to the book. I'm, even what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to get multiple copies of the book, at least five copies of the book, and I'm going to give them some to athletes, some to parents over here so that at least they get insights into a lot of these things. So I'm sure when I give out those copies, I'll have them email you, you know, just to thank you for writing such an amazing piece. But please let us know where we can find you, you know, online, yeah. you know, how we can get in touch with you, basically. Uh, I'm sure if you just type, type in Mark Williams Sports Science into the internet, you'll probably come across some hits. I have, um, my email address is mwilliams at ihmc.org. I have a personal website, which is um, www.markwilliamssportscience.com. And uh, the book is available through Amazon and uh, I guess, you know, most uh, good bookshops. Uh, but certainly Amazon is probably when most book sales are going these days. So it's out there. It's the best How Elite Athletes Are Made. And it's, yeah. it's available in hardback, softback and audible version. Mm, fantastic All definitely sorts. getting more of those physical copies to share with the athletes thank you so much for coming on prof 
Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, and uh, good luck with the rest of the show. Uh, thank you so much. And there you have it, guys. Now, was it as good as I said it was? You know, it was an episode that I didn't want to end, and of course, I I needed to wait. You know, for 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 you know, like an hour or more than an hour thereabout. You know, before saying like, wow, like this is so enjoyable. I hope you enjoyed it just as much as I did. You know, because I was learning things that even I didn't know as well. Particularly, where Prof was talking about those learning environments, sports engagement, and you know, sports specialization, how they differ. Like, oh man, you know, so much knowledge in one hour. And of course, uh, we're gonna do our best. To get Professor Mark back on the podcast. It was so good. If you guys enjoyed it, send me a mail, tola at athletemaestro.com. Of course, I would copy Professor Mark in that email as well. And of course, you want to check out his website, markwilliamsportscience.com. Markwilliamsportscience.com. And of course, uh, you can email him. You have any questions whatsoever that you want to ask, m.william at ihmc.org. m.williams at ihmc.org that's where you can reach him that's where of course all your inquiries can be directed or you just send me the email afford it to professor mark it was such a pleasure having him on i totally thoroughly enjoyed it. if you haven't subscribed to the podcast so that you don't miss great episodes like this non-legible episodes like this that are so special then of course you want to head over to athletemaestro.com forward slash subscribe you learn how to subscribe you'd also learn how to leave a rating and review athletemaestro.com forward slash subscribe and of course you do want to check out the video of the podcast you know prof had this um a digital background thing where you can see all these machines and and that's where he's going he's leaving us you know in the psychology field to go into machine learning and all of that but ah it was so so good so you want to check out the video head over to my instagram the video might be up on youtube at the time you're listening to this i'm not sure yet but you can catch clips on my instagram at tola if you have any questions whatsoever about this episode about sports performance anything sports related send me an email tola at athletemaestro.com tola at athletemaestro.com i'll catch you guys on the next episode of the show remember knowing is not enough you must apply willing is not enough you must do i want you to go out there digest all the nuggets from professor mark williams i want you to go out there and i want you to be a maestro today and every single day <laughs>